Hi, I am Nicole J. Georges. I am a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist living in Portland, Oregon with my half-blind chihuahua, Ponyo Georges. <coughs> Welcome to our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Hi, Nicole. This is Missy calling from Athens, Georgia, and I was just wondering if you could talk some about self-publishing versus working with an editor, because I was wondering what you thought would work better. So I was just wondering about that. Okay, bye-bye. Hi, Missy. Thank you for your question. And hi. I think about editing all the time. Because I self-published for at least 10 years before I got my contract to do Calling Dr. Laura. And in the time I was self-publishing and working with small publishers, I didn't get edited at all, basically. Um, There was a handwritten typo on one of the first pages of my second book, much to my chagrin. So when I got the contract for Calling Dr. Laura with Houghton Mifflin, I was really excited to work with professionals who could help me make my story better and more cohesive. Um, because if I was trying to say something that a reader wasn't understanding, I wanted someone to tell me that so that I could reach out and help them understand, because that's what I'm here to do. I want people to understand what I'm trying to say so they can walk into my story and feel it. Something that I heard at the Center for Cartoon Studies that I carry on in my teaching practice and my practice when I think about editors is, you're the captain. They are your crew. So... You know, if I'm in a workshopping class or if I'm working with an editor, you know, those people are all trying to help me. They're my crew. They're giving me their opinions. They're trying to make this better. But at the end of the day, I'm still the captain. I still retain control of the parts that are essential to my story. Um, And I think that that's a very healthy way to look at it. So what are my thoughts on it? My thoughts are, even if you're self-publishing, if you can, if you're working on something that's important to you and you have a friend or someone you trust who is not a Debbie Downer, have them look over your stuff. Um, I seek out people whose opinion I respect, who I know want the best for me, who I find intelligent, who know what I'm getting at, and people who know how to deliver all that information in a kind and productive way. I know people who are Debbie Downers, and I don't go to them with my fledgling stories. You know, it's kind of like you're going to someone with a, a fetus of a story, something you really, really care about that's half-cooked, and you're like, what do you think? So you need someone to treat it delicately, even if they're trying to make it better. Um, So I don't go to people that are downers, people who see any limit for me. I go to people whose work I respect, and oftentimes people who are already teachers. Like if you have a friend that's a college professor or has taught a class before, whose work you also like, they generally know how to verbalize things in a way that's productive and moves you forward instead of um, Debbie downing you, throwing a wet blanket on your project and chasing you into a hole of self-doubt. Because ultimately, you're good enough to be here. Your story's good enough to be here. Somebody will want to read it. It's just a matter of making it better. So that's what I think about editing. I find it very valuable. And even if you get a deal with some publisher, big or small, and they don't edit you, Find someone else to edit you, and if possible, do it before you ink so that they're not too precious about your work and you're not too precious about your work and necessary changes can be made 
to the story before you commit them to paper. Okay, I hope this was helpful. Thank you for your question. Mariko Tamaki is a writer. She collaborates with illustrators to create graphic novels and comic books, including her cousin Jillian Tamaki, with whom she made the book Skim and This One Summer, which was recently banned. Um, something I didn't know until recently is that Mariko has also written for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Tomb Raider. I most recently listened to her book Saving Montgomery's Soul on Audible, um, I would recommend it on book or on Audible. I thought it was nice. I talked to her in Oakland, California on her couch that is the color of a teddy bear after going to lunch where I ate a taco that had edible flowers and we talked extensively about pigtails and bangs. There's a moment in this interview where she forgets the name of somebody. So if she wanted me to tell you when we're talking about the Ninja Turtles, she wrote a story about Casey and April. Okay, now that we have that clear, enjoy my talk with Mariko Tamaki. We both ate a lot of sugar as children. Right. Oh, tons. I, I lived off of sugar. My teeth actually rotted out on really? my head because I was never made to brush my teeth. And I would go to bed with a bottle. I got bottle rot. And I continued to eat sugar all the time. I have fillings in every one of my teeth. Wow. I was like a sugar hound. That's it. intense. That's, that's it was, kind it was of, intense. That's... It was next level. Were you were you like a lickum stick? Did you ever use the lickum stick? No. But during your talk, I think you were saying that you ate the, like a fun dip. Fun dip. Yeah, like a sugar stick that you lick and you stick in more sugar. Yeah. And then you eat the sugar off the sugar stick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I what love you that. I love the chalky, a solid chalky, sugary thing. I like like a candy necklace. Yeah, a candy necklace. I love those. Or like the paper. Candy, yeah. like the buttons. You're chewing anything the... like that, like a heart. <laughs> anything that looked like you could write on a chalkboard with it. Like anything like that. And I was obsessed with... Um, any any kind of like a gummy shaped thing, like I to this day, am like have a hard time passing up a gummy fried egg. Like okay. when I see one, I'm like I'm gonna eat that. Like, even if it's just like <laughs> even if it's like in a totally like you know if I saw a kid walking down the street with a gummy fried egg, I would probably turn and like walk after that kid and try to figure out some way to get the gummy fried like, egg. Excuse me, excuse me. I'd be like, your hey, mom kid. called me, told me to pick you up from school. Here, I'll yeah. have the egg. I'll give you ten bucks for that egg, kid. Give me that egg. Yeah, exactly. I love I'd like a gummy Coke bottle. Yeah, wow. all that stuff. I remember really always wishing I could get a gummy rat. I never oh. got a gummy rat, and now I can't really eat that kind of gummy anymore. Oh, yeah, because it's got Cause the gelatin. Uh, gelatin. I mean, I can eat, like, a Swedish fish and some weird, random little ones, but generally not the bigger Swedish molds. Swedish fish don't have... No. Really? Yeah. I like a Swedish fish. Do you eat... A... No, you guys don't have Swedish berries. I've seen Swedish berries. Right. I wonder if that's... Because a Swedish berry, to me, is like... That's like... Like, I actually... In, in my house right now, on the floor somewhere... Is a thing of red vines because mm. I thought red vines were like Twizzlers. Yeah. But they're not like Twizzlers. Like the poor man's Twizzler. They're like a grease, like they're like wax. Yeah. I was literally in the thing and I had that like kid thing where I was like trying to like spit it out into my hand <laughs> and just like flick it on the floor because I was like, this is not a Twizzler. Yeah. Yeah. But then you have way too many. So did you buy like the whole bucket? I bought, well, I bought a movie size small, which is basically like a pack oh, of yeah, 50, yeah, yeah. so. Oh, you know what I do like? It's dots. 
That's a good too. That's another thing Michelle T makes fun of me for. Really? She's like, if I ever had any question about whether or not you, like it was like an act that you seem like you're from another era the fact that you enjoy eating dots yeah is really like a wine thing. gum do you like a wine gum? i don't know what's a wine gum oh that's like kind of like one step up it's like the scotch mint of dots it's like oh. one step more into like an old lady territory <laughs> i like that yeah the other day people came over to my house and i offered them wrapped candies before they left yeah because I just was like, oh, I have these wrapped caramels. Here, take one of these. My grandma one. used to always have like a double Ziploc bag. So she'd have a bag with the candies in them inside a bigger bag. And then as soon as she gave you the candy, she'd keep her hand up for you to give her the wrapper back so she could put it in the bigger bag. Wow. And so that, so, I mean, like if there's every, like whenever I think of efficiency, like my mental image of efficiency <laughs> is that like double Ziploc bag. I'm going to remember that. Yeah, it's good, right? I'm going to keep that. As I just toss my Trident wrappers directly back into my purse. Yeah. Or if I have trash man, I don't know what to do with it. I just put it in my own purse. I have to put them in my purse because I've ruined so many clothes by having all these wrappers in my pocket. And then washing them. And then washing them. Um, I want to ask you questions from your very own blog that you suggested as questions. Right. That people should... All right, so a Q&A's... What a, there's a formula that's like a Q&A's... The, there's like the first question is someone just talking about themselves, right? Saying something they want to say. Well, I think that the the problem with the Q and A is it's almost like asking somebody like, "What do you want for dinner?" It's like, "Oh my god, of all the many things I could have, like I don't even know, right?" So it's like if you say to somebody like, "Do you have any questions for this person?" That's such a huge spectrum of possibility. It's like, uh, you know. Yeah, I do, but, like, I don't even know where to start. So I just thought on my blog, I was like, one day I'm just going to write down, like, here's what I think a relatively good question would be, and just sort of take it from there. And then I threw in a couple of random ones as well. Those were my favorite ones. Yeah, those were pretty The most exciting Q&A I ever went to was seeing Joe Sacco speak at Powell's in Portland. Right. And old, old people being like, how can you promote terrorism? Like, it just got really intense. I was like, oh my God, is someone going to assassinate him right now? Because right. they're really upset. Right. Um, that was the most exciting q and I've ever been to. Right. Most Q&As are a repetition of a question that was already asked in the panel, right? Yeah. And you're like, you just want to say like, well, we already answered that. Next question. Next question. Well, so I ask for advice questions and sometimes I do it live, sometimes I do it on the podcast or on a blog. And a lot of times people will ask a question that's not advice. Right. And I always call it out. I'm like, this isn't, just so you know, this isn't advice. This isn't advice. Like, the worst ones I ever got were <clears throat> when some college students were like, what's your favorite position? Right. Was one, I was like, that's not advice. Right. And that's none of your business. Right. Um, yeah. I think that it's also, um, you know, like, what to ask an author is kind of like a, like an author is just a person who has a life and you could ask them like... How do you make a really good spaghetti? You know, but it's like, it sort of seems like the actual things to ask somebody. Like to me, the best questions are to carry on a conversation that I'm already interested in having. having. Yeah. So like, you know, how do you feel about, you know, like, like some question to carry on a conversation about like feminism or yeah. putting politics into your writing or any of those things. Like I'm super interested but I think that that's, you know, that's a conversation that's not like a raise your hand, ask a question type situation. Yeah. Wait, I have 
So you have these questions on your blog, but I just thought of another one that I want to ask you before I ask you those, which is I just want to quickly ask you about bangs. Bangs. I'm sure people don't ask you about this. Nobody asks me about bangs. It has nothing to do with your work. Right. Literally nothing. No, except that while I'm working, I sweep away my bangs. No matter matter what the length. Yeah. I always like a, yeah, for sure. Do you have a strong opinion I, I like your bangs, which I is do. why I thought to even bring it up with you. Thank you. Because I was looking at pictures of you before where you have just straight across bangs, and then I'm like, ooh, I want those bangs. And then I have the moment where I stop because every time I text my friends, I want bangs. They say, do you have PMS? And like clockwork, the only yes. time I ever want bangs is when I have PMS. So right. They say, put down the scissors, Don't walk do away. It. Don't do it yourself. Never do it yourself. I always do it myself. Get someone to do your bangs for you. Yeah, that's my first advice is... Most hairdressers will do a bang trim for free and or will do your bangs for you super cheap. Like yeah. so that's that's the first thing to know is that it's not something you do yourself. Okay, so when I I've had, you know, obviously a relationship with bangs. Sure. And it used we all to have. there have been times, I don't know if you've ever done this, but where I kept cutting them more and more at a slant or like they would be uneven and so I'd make them shorter and shorter until right. they were like a half an inch long. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, No, I'm now I'm here. I actually got my bangs done recently and then realized that I hadn't gotten my eyebrows done and uh, like had like a panic because I was like, oh my God, my eyebrows are done. Oh my God. And I've gone like, like I realized like I like, it's like if you like go to like pour milk in a bowl and then pour the cereal in afterwards, you're like, oh my God, why did I do this? This is not the way to do this. Yeah. So I like raced to my eyebrow lady. I was like, you have to see me right away. Like it's, it's an emergency and like carted my way like all the way across town a great expense and difficulty so I could get my eyebrows done because I was like, I look like a freak. What does she do to them? She just shapes them. She just like, actually they haven't been, like you can't see this, but they haven't been done recently. So I'm, normally they're like, like a, like a crescent moon. They're like oh, solid. Yeah. But right now they're sort of shaggy because I, I can't be bothered to, yeah, because I'm growing out my bangs right now. So it's kind of, they're kind of covered. Do you believe that bangs are the poor man's Botox? Uh... I think that bangs are a really complicated decision in a woman's life. Yeah. I think it's really, you know, I think it's like a, it's a real crossroads. Because also once you go that way, you can't go back. Like it's such a long haul to like grow them out. Yeah. And so like right now you have a cool sweep though, which is kind of in between. Right. So. But I don't know. Like. If anything in the next two weeks, I mean, I'll keep you updated. Thanks, please. Anything could happen in the next two weeks because the one thing that I'm not a fan of, and I, first of all, I want to say that I respect anything anybody does with their hair. It's nice of you. I think that it's your hair, it's your life, whatever you want to do. I personally have, feel like I have moved on from the, the barrette or the bobby pin holding back the bang. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to avoid that. Mm-hmm. If it comes to a point where I need a bobby pin, then I'm going to go back and cut my bangs. Whoa. Yeah. Because for me personally, and not for anybody else, I just want to make that really clear because I have gotten flack for this. I think that you can be a super cutie with like a Hello Kitty hair pin, whatever. Great. For me, I've moved beyond that. We were talking before, like fashion-wise, I touch the child line often. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing is just one step too far for me. I will say I have a bobby pin happening somewhere right now. Because I had my hair was like in weird greasy bang strips. Right. And then it also, I have like a little bit of a complex about looking like I'm balding. I I know how to hide a bobby pin really well. I can like slide that in there so that yeah. people are like, you got a bobby pin in there? I'm like, 
Maybe. I don't know. None of your business. Well, I don't I don't like a performative bobby pin. <laughs> you know? Well that's like when I used to have my hair um, up more, like in a bouffanty kind of thing or some right. kind of large and people are like is that your real hair? I'm like, just sit back and enjoy the show. Yeah. Just, just relax. Well, Alaska Thunderfuck, who's one of my favorite drag queens, has the song, uh, This Is My Hair, I Don't Wear Wigs, which is probably one of my favorite drag queens. How does that go? Yes. Or what is the... It's, it's literally, the only lyrics are, This Is My Hair, I Don't Wear Wigs. It's so funny. <laughs> Her repeating that line over and over and over again. I just want to be like, don't touch it, it's none of your business. Yeah, it's That's mine. my song. Yeah. Well, it's like with tattoos, like... Don't, when don't you have it. art on your body, the number of like people who feel like a perfect ease running their fingers lightly <laughs> up my arm, <laughs> like, and it, sometimes it happens where you're like, you're like, is that a cool breeze? No, it's a stranger's <laughs> finger running up the scales of the fish tattoo on my arm, That's and upsetting. it's a real like sense of like, you know, it's like a, like a. Like, that's, like, a person who, like, can't go to the zoo, you know, alone, because they're going to, like, crawl over and, like, snuggle with a panda bear or whatever. So, yeah, I find that. I think it's, like, I really love the things that I do to myself to, like, dress myself in, but it's not to imply in any way that it's, like, it's, like, a free show, you know? Yeah, it's... what I'm wearing. It's not, uh... It's, like, when someone likes a t-shirt and they grab your t-shirt, they're, like, ooh, I like that t-shirt, and you're, like, yeah, that's, uh... It's my t-shirt. It's it's covering my body. It's, it's on me. Yeah. Don't touch it. <laughs> well, it's like a little bit like a boundary issue where people are like, I saw a little bit of something, so maybe I can see everything. Right. I mean, I think about this in lots of contexts. Like, as an autobiographical sure. cartoonist, people are like, well, I know a little bit about you, so it seems like maybe you have zero boundaries. Can right. I just know everything? Right. Like the aforementioned question, what's your favorite position? I'm like, right. that's none of your business. Right. Like, but other things were my business, You're like, right? That's right. All the things that I have set out for you, as I've set them out, are there for you to look at and discuss. Anything else is not for you, and that is the way that I have set it up. It's like you couldn't, you wouldn't go to a buffet and be like, uh, "Do you guys have pizza?" <laughs> and be like, "No, we have this food that we've laid out here." Yeah, but you have like everything laid out, so you must have the ingredients to make pizza. <laughs> yes, we do, but uh, as as mentioned, uh, we don't have any out right now. That's a good metaphor for that. Yeah. Wait, I want to tell you something I've been practicing in therapy is saying out loud to people, I don't like to talk about my tattoos, which is the worst. It's so hard because people come at you and they look so excited and happy. And I think they are to share this moment where you're going to be like, well, thank you for asking. I wanted to tell you the significance of this. I have been waiting, (laughs) waiting, waiting, waiting. I saw um, there was this guy on the show. They had like a, a reality TV show where they were auditioning uh, people to be the next lead singer of NXS. Oh, yeah. yeah. I saw that show. It was a good show. <laughs> and uh, this guy had the tattoo where it said human on the one hand and the word being on the other. Uh, <laughs> so and it became very clear that he got those tattoos that he could be like, hey, I'm just a, put his arm together, human being. <laughs> and it's like, it's such a, I mean, in a way, it's all the more frustrating because you're like, dude. Like, don't set up that as a practice. Like, no, no, none of the rest of us are like showing our tattoos as a way to punctuate our sentiments <laughs> and sentences. None of the rest of us are doing that. Don't do that because it just, it really is like, a, you know, anyone who watches the show now is going to think that, that that's it's some fair sort game. of performance that we're all waiting to do with our tattoos. No. Yeah. I had to stop taking public transportation in Portland. Because the bitch face I would have to have in the summertime was so intense 
to keep people at bay that it would right. give me a headache. And so I would get home after riding the Max, which is like our light rail, and I just would be, like, my head and neck and shoulders would be so tense. Right. From having to be like, don't look at me. Right. I don't want to talk about it. Well, it's funny because it's like, like, I have, I have blue hair now, and I go through various phases of, like, not hair, not blue hair, blue hair. Uh, and on the one hand, when people, it, like, makes people really happy, you're like, you know what? That's no, no skin off my back for yeah. you to feel, like, content to see, like, a Smurf-like color in the wilds of, like, Oakland. I'm kind of down with that. But on the other hand, I uh, had some woman in uh, the farmer's market the other day was like, so you had to dye your hair that color? And I was like, that's not really a question, right? That's, like, a rhetorical question, because obviously I did. <laughs> did you say that to her? I was like, yeah. Like, but I was also like, you work at a farmer's market. You work at a farmer's market. You don't know You don't know how this goes. <laughs> You're selling me organic corn on the cob, and you don't know that a person has to dye their hair blue. Like, have you come straight, like, from the ground <laughs> with the corn? Like, I don't understand how that works. And I, and I get so, yeah, that's the thing is, like, the flip side of it is that I get so aggravated. Either it makes me super happy. Like, actually, once, like, whenever I go through airport security, I feel like having colored hair helps. People don't think that you're a threat if you have gone to the trouble to dye your hair a color. Like, you're calling attention to yourself. Yeah. You're not trying to go under the radar. I actually had, was standing in line at airport security and a security guard on, like, a security guy on his way to work went by me and he was like I love your hair and the woman behind me was like did that guy just say he loves your hair and I was like yeah and I was like I'm not getting like I'm gonna go through security no problem TSA free check didn't sign up for it yeah what exactly so I feel like uh yes it's all these things that we decide to do to ourselves for ourselves for ourselves well yeah for ourselves I mean it makes me makes me physically happy to have blue hair yeah I, I used to really my ideal was having navy blue hair but at a certain point, I was like, that's just not physically possible. Right. Because everyone I saw try to do it, it would be like that maybe for one minute. Right. And then the next day, they would just be like smurfed. Out. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, right. wait. I want to ask you these rapid fire questions. Okay, well, okay. And then we'll ask you some deeper questions. Okay. <laughs> rapid fire. If you could wear one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? The perfect black dress. Uh, how, what's the cut of that dress? Uh, it's an A-line. Uh-huh. It's an A-line, like, uh, just like slightly above the knee. Uh, to be worn with black tights, yeah. probably, yeah. always, and very... The only thing I would switch up would be my shoes. I see. Yeah. Mine would be maybe, like, black Peter Pan collar dress. Yeah. Also above the knee. If someone offered you a chicken, would you take it? Then no. where would you put it? No, I would not take a chicken. I really... There are chickens in my neighborhood. Uh, it's like, you know, chickens in cages. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find it disturbing to be, like, walking by and hear them... Because to me, they don't sound, like, happy. To me, they sound, like, out of place. What if you had to take in a chicken? Where would you put it? I would cook it immediately. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What number are you thinking of right now? Seven. That's what the number I was thinking of when I wrote this down. (laughs) What do you think about pets and strollers? What do you think about the people who put their pets in strollers? I think that, uh, I mean, I think if it's a really old dog and you're like, okay, I love this dog and I want this dog to continue to have a happy life, then I'm super down with that. But it is disturbing to me to see a significant number of pets who can't like, who can't make it around on their own. (laughs) It's like, like I uh, was hanging out with my nephews recently and they're like two and five and the two year old, at some point you're going to pick him up and carry him yeah. because he'll like wander off or he's tired. He, you know, he gets tired, 
But the idea that you have a pet that's like that, you're like, oh, he's not going to walk for, you know, more than two blocks. I'm going to have to carry him. Like, I don't know. Like, is that, maybe that's... That's not normal unless your dog's Jerry. Yeah. Or disabled. Um, if you could be on any reality show right now, what show would you be on? Oh, man. Um, I have this, like, weird... <laughs> I would like to be a passing guest of a person who is on The Real L Word. Mm. I would like to be the person that, like, when they're at breakfast in the morning, when all the, like, crap has gone down, is, like, sitting there having my latte, like, I don't know. You guys are <laughs> crazy. Like, a, a judgmental third person whose life isn't being followed strictly, but, but like who just, friend? like, shows up and is just, like, at the party and is, like, commenting on the chaos. Like, wittily commenting on the chaos as I'm, like, putting my phone in my bag and leaving. Like, uh, I gotta go, you guys. You're, like, Khloe Kardashian's best friend who shows up, like, every once in a while and yeah. they have fun together. Then she's, she's not. Then she's gone. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't want to be on a show. I find that shows about, like, super rich people are not that interesting to me. No. I like a reality TV show that's about somebody who's got, like, an income bracket that, like, makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Where it is, like, an income it's not just, like, super rich. Yeah. It's yeah. not just, Yeah. I would be on The Amazing Race, which oh, I think everybody already knows. Right. Well, they don't know. If you don't know, you should know. I've played for The Amazing Race several times. Uh, what's your favorite color? Uh, right now, it's blue. Same. But it changes. Oh. Uh, what is a book that you have recently read that you highly recommend? I just read Lou Burney's The Long and Far Away Gone, mm. uh, which is a murder mystery that is uh, kind of like about these crimes that happened in the 90s, but it's set in the present day. And one of the characters is, like, a male PI, and the other is just this woman whose sister was killed. Mm -hmm. And the whole book rotates between their two stories, and it's just amazing. It's just, like, an amazing Mm. book that I... It was, like, one of those books that as you're reading it, you realize you're reading it really fast. You're like, oh, my God, I'm going to finish this book. Okay, I'm going to put this book down. Mm -hmm. But then you're, like, aware. It's like, you know, this girl you want to call. You're like, oh, my God, I want to read Like, it's still happening. It's still like, yeah. No, and I was thinking in, like, the voice of the characters all the time. I would be making my sandwich, and I would be, like, hearing them narrating me making the sandwich. Do you get emotionally, like, into the world of a book, and then you feel like that's affecting your day-to-day life? Oh, yeah. Me too. I mean, if I watch too many documentaries... I start to feel like my life is a documentary. Yeah. Like, if I watch those, like, 30 for 30, those ESPN ones, like, when I wake up, I hear, like, do, do, do. Except that I'm not an athlete, so, but yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely immerse myself in, like, I've been rewatching The L Word. Yeah. Uh, just for myself, for, uh, for, like, you know, for educational reasons. And, uh, <laughs> I can definitely feel, like, this L Word like vibe to, like, like, you know, I feel like I want to go and have brunch in this really crowded place with all my friends just having to drop by. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I get very, like, I get into the voices of whatever I'm reading all the time. Did you ever read book, the books by Lois Ann Yamanaka? No. Oh, my God. I think that you might like her. Okay. She wrote a really beautiful book called Wild Meat and the Bully Burgers. But she wrote, and I read that, and then I got into her, so I got everything she ever wrote. Right. She read this, she writes about, um growing up in Hawaii basically oh cool and a lot of her books are about young people but they also could be read by a, a grown ass woman so she wrote this book called Blues Hanging that was about like these little kids in Hawaii in maybe the 70s and I think maybe they're orphans 
and it's pretty depressing. That's the kind of, I really like depressing coming of age or traumatic coming of age stories. But sure. I remember reading that, and then I just even started eating the food that they were eating. Yeah. Like, I was isolated. I was in the country. I was reading it alone, and I started eating these weird, like, vegan versions of their, like, Wonder Bread and bologna sandwiches. Right. Where I'd be eating this, like, vegan version of, like, Wonder Bread, veganaise, fake bologna, just right. on a piece of bread being like, I'm in solidarity with you children, and just feeling so sad and in it. But then when you interact with people that are not reading those books, right. it's weird. They're like, what's going on with you? <laughs> well, I, like, when I was a kid, I used to read Little House in the Prairie books all the time. And I would feel cold. Like, I would imagine my room was, like, in this, like, little cabin. And I would take nuts and stuff like that from our kitchen. And I would put them in jars and hide them, like, in my larder under my bed. Like, I've always <laughs> been a person who, like, takes whatever experience I'm having, like, a step too far. Yeah. Where everybody else is like, ooh. And you're like, no, 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 this is really good. This is just enhancing it. It's enhancing it. Yeah. People are like, no, it's going too far. It's going too far. Same. Yeah. I feel I feel that way. Um, you are a Capricorn. Yes. I just need to say. Yes. It's stated over and over on this podcast that I believe Capricorns are hardworking. We are goats. We are determined. Yeah. I am like using this running up now to like try to train to get to 10K. And I if, if something says like that I have 10 minutes left... If I'm dying, I can't stop because I'm like, I got to finish this thing. Like yeah. I can't, like I can't stop watching. I mean, it's, it's the equally lazy habits. Like I can't watch a show halfway through. I have to watch it all the way to the end. Like, oh yeah, I have to finish everything that I start in a way that feels finished. Like when people talk about walking out of a movie, Ugh. a lot would have to happen for me to walk out of a movie. Right. Like I think a, I've only ever walked out of one movie. What do you know? What movie was it? It was a movie about a bachelor party, and in like the first ten minutes of the movie, the sex worker is killed in this really violent, horrible way. Was it called The Hangover? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't called The Hangover. It was something else. But I was there um, with one of my my first publisher, Ann Dector, and my friend. I think my friend Zoe was with me too. And uh, our publisher, who's like a strident feminist, and I mean we're all pretty strident, yeah. was like, "Nope," and like stood up and like walked out, and we were like. Yeah, I guess we're not we're not staying. No. But I even if I don't understand what the hell is going on in a movie, I'm like, we're just gonna. I like sit back and I'm just like, okay, we're just gonna do this because we we committed to doing this. Do you feel that way about projects too? Oh yeah, for sure. I I made a rule for myself at a certain point where I was like, I'm never going to not finish a drawing that I start. So I'd start a drawing and I'd be like, oh, that sucks. But then I was like, you just need to finish this drawing. So like, say I'm like starting to draw a face. And I'm yeah. like, this face is looking really fucked up. But I'm like, I'm going to finish it. And by the time I finish it, generally, I'll find something redemptive. Wow. I'll be able to redeem it somehow. So then instead of it just being this half-finished thing on a piece of paper, it's just a thing on a piece right. of paper that might be good or bad, but it's a real thing. I will say, when I first moved to California, I was working on a novel. And every time I sat down to write it, I wanted to cry. I was just like, this is everything about this like I just I hate everybody in the book I hate everything about it and then I went to see Daniel Handler talk at Litquake and he and the other writer whose name I forget unfortunately were talking about projects that they had abandoned and he was like yeah like he started talking about this book that he wrote and he was like and it's just not meant to be like I had to like just stop writing it and I had this like cold pop in my stomach because I was like oh oh yeah I have to I can't write this book like I'm I'm not supposed to write this book because it's so hard and it's not fun and it's making me really sad uh so 
I, but then what I had to do was immediately start writing another book mm-hmm. because I was like, okay, if I'm not writing this book, then I have to be writing something. So I like sat down immediately and started writing, um, this book that I eventually finished. Um, but it was like, a it was really, it was really hard. Yeah. I think it's like, it was like one of the, yeah, one of the hardest things for me to do is to not do something. Yeah. Yeah. I get really like cranky about it for sure. Yeah, I have a lot of projects that are on the back burner, and that gives me a low level of anxiety whenever I remember that that exists. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's really I like working on like a couple projects at once because then I feel like I always have something to do. So if I'm burnt out on something, I'll just like switch tracks and start working on something else. When I was a teenager, I met Ian Mackay, this punk guy from Fugazi, who was like. Oh, what a bummer it is to like put the pressure on your art to make a living. Right. Uh, and at the time when he said that, I was like, well, it's easy for you to say, A, because you have some kind of safety net, B, right. because you're actually making a living off of a record label and your music, and B, I did not, and then like the Capricorn in me was like, that's a loser attitude. <laughs> I was like, that's what somebody says who's not talented. Right. I just had this whole judgmental rainbow of judgment right. around that. But recently, you know, like I do fellowships to get money or write grants to get money or teach to get money. And sure. very little of my income comes from, I mean, it, it's all cumulative from my art. Right. But like, actually like my publisher isn't like, this money's going to finance your life yeah. for a long, long time. Here you go. But I was thinking about how free I feel in that way because I get to make the art I want to make without being like, if I don't make it in a certain way, I will starve to death. Yeah. But how do you feel about the idea of, you know, how of your living from your art and retaining your freedom and I I, know I never expected to make a living off of my art it was never a thought that I had that that was like the kind of work that I was ever going to make because I really started off working like like you know the first community that I was writing for and, and performing with was the small queer community in Toronto and I wasn't like there was nobody in our group who was like um, you know, making the bucks. All of us were just working for small feminist presses and publishing with small feminist presses and, you know, like going and doing like open mics and stuff like that. And maybe you get 20 bucks and you're like, 20 bucks. Yeah. I'm going to take a cab home and get ice cream. Like that was like, that was it. And I always had a job. I've always, you know, done other things. So I think that it's really, I mean, I, I think the idea of having to think of your work as being, uh, as as being this thing that's financially going to support you has always been this thing that I've been kind of trying to shy away from because I want to make sure that the things that I'm making are the things that make sense to me to make, not something that I'm like, you know what would be really great is a book about dragons. I feel like that would be really awesome. Yeah. I guess I'd better write a book about dragons. Like, if you... I'm, I'm pretty sure the people that I know who have written books about dragons really wanted to write them. Yeah. And I'm like, that's awesome. It is not in my brain. I want to be able to write the like weirdo book that's in my brain and not have to worry about you know worry about it being like yeah my financial support so I too like I've always worked I've taught I've gotten grants I've um I've worked you know various corporate jobs I've worked like day jobs which I also think is important because I can't imagine just being an artist because being an artist is such a solitary thing Mm -hmm. like You know, being an artist is like, you wake up, you have breakfast, I sit down, I try to imagine something, I work on writing it, I watch a little TV, I try to imagine something else, I work on writing it, I go and I have lunch. Like, 
if that was my day every day, I would truly go insane. I have to have something that's not related to like imagining something and writing it down to do Mm -hmm. outside of like that, like loop. Yeah. So to me, like it's, I was funny because I was just talking with another friend of mine and we were having our like, we were like retail work. Remember we worked retail? That was so awesome. I mean, at the time, I don't think we thought it was awesome, but we were like fantasizing like, yeah, you go to this job and then you get to like talk to people all day and then you like go home and write and that'd be so great. And yeah, like that is, I think that that's always been in the back of my mind, like an essential part of being an artist. Mm -hmm. It's still getting world experiences and not isolating. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just also, I guess it's just like the, and I'm not saying that this is true, it's just always been my mindset around it is that, like, yeah, that that's, that's like life. Life is going and working someplace. Maybe that's like a Canadian mentality, I'm not sure. Canadians can correct me if this is not true. But I feel like that there's this kind of like, you go to work, like, you know, and that's like, that's like the thing that you do. Yeah. Also, just like financially speaking, the way getting paid for writing works is you don't get paid until you finish the thing. So that is like a financial income stream is very dicey. <laughs> yeah. Because if it takes you an extra year to write the thing, you're like, it's okay. <laughs> well, yeah, with my books, like get 50% up front. Right. That doesn't, that's not enough money to last you no. for multiple years. Well, and for some people it is. I know that there are some people, and now I know people who just write, and yeah. I'm like, that's awesome, good for you, but... Yeah, it's not it's not been my experience. I mean, in a way, like to to write things that make money and to get paid to write just feels like such an incredible privilege to me. Yeah. That the idea that you're like it almost just seems like greedy to me that I'm like that's all you want to do. It's very uncapricorn, I guess. I'm like that's it. Yeah. You have so much more time. Like you have like you have other like there's 12 hours in a day. For sure you could do something else. Oh yeah, I try to jam the day full of. Yeah. I mean, I I love low-paying things. I'm very attractive to them. So no matter what I'm doing, I'm always, like, volunteering, thinking of more things I could do for free. Like, it's not on purpose. It's just the things I'm attracted to doing are things that serve some community purpose and that there's not really a lot of money to be had there. Right. And then everything else that I've done, the fact that I can, like, feed myself without going to a 9-to-5 job is just... Well, in every job that I've had, I've always come away from that experience with, like, you know... Like, that's where all the little stories that make up life happen is when you're with other people. Like, I've worked as a, te- as a technician for a theater. I've worked um, as secretary. I've worked as, uh, like, an, you know, an administrative assistant, which is not the same thing as a secretary. Uh, all of these different things. And I've had jobs where I've had to... Almost every job I've ever had has been about, you know, talking and dealing with people that I wouldn't deal with otherwise. Yeah. And I think that that's a really key thing otherwise I just get super chatty with like the grocery store checkout person you're like hey how are you doing you look good you change your hair <laughs> you know, like, no what are little... you doing this weekend <laughs> not me what are you yeah, doing exactly that's what when I started living alone and spending more time alone I feel like when I saw my friends I was like way too much right like I had too much energy stored up but I'd be like ha 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 
<laughs> like laughing at a joke like too loud for right. too long. Like, You're just like on their couch like, ah, oh, I love this couch. <laughs> and then I just like don't know when to leave. Like I don't know when's an appropriate time to leave a place. So I'm just still there. And it's like the party ended maybe two hours ago. They're trying to clean up. And I'm just right. like, anyway, guys. So then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I got to tell you the story. And they're like, yeah, but it's two. And I'm like, oh, so you want to, should I, I should sleep? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Do you have an extra pillow? I'm just going to sleep. Um, I just saw you talk at CCA, mm-hmm. where I am employed. Yes, you are. And you gave a talk. I gave a great talk. You I gave felt great, very good about my talk. You gave a great talk. Um, and part of your talk was talking about how you work with illustrators. Because you write books that I people do. illustrate. Yes. Most of them. You right. do have some novels. I write books with illustrators. But I really liked your hands-off approach. Yes. To dealing with illustrators, which is, the diff- which is very separate from most people, I think. Really? I mean, I guess I'm thinking about, like art directors right. or other people that can't draw comics but maybe have a very strict idea of what it should look like right. like too bad I can't draw but yeah. here's what I think right yeah I mean that to me I can I can see that there's um, like I think that part of it is that I come from it like from a like a theater background and also from like a feminist performance art collective background which is this idea that you know like when I worked in plays when I first started working in theater it was always amazing to me that you would write a script, but then what it became once it was embodied by person, once it was put on a stage, like you as a as a playwright are like the first step and really it's like a director and an actor and then like whoever's doing the light and the set and all that stuff. So you're like the first, you're the starting point, but you do not control the story. I think that that was definitely something that I had in my mind when I went into comics. Um, and also I think that I was just really lucky in that I was working with someone because Jillian was the first person I made comics with who had a really, I mean, I think she also really had a strong sense of what she wanted to do. And so it was just like a really easy thing to be like, well, here's the script. Uh, Also because it was a diary. So there wasn't, you know, a lot of like, um, it wasn't like this kind of action packed thing where you had to explain a lot of what was happening visually Um, or I didn't (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was just like one of those things where that worked so well like that combination of or like that way of working made so much sense and worked so well that I was just like let's just I'll just always do it like this like it just you know that just seemed like the way the final product which was a complete surprise to me when I saw it I was like I love this I love that I have no idea like, I knew what she was going to look like because I had seen character sketches and stuff like that. Yeah. But and this is for Skim. This is for Skim, yeah, yeah. Sorry, the first comic we did together with Groundwood Books. Um, that I was just like, this is perfect. And then it's funny because actually the second experience I had after that was writing for Minx, um, which is a DC Comics. Uh, and I worked with Shelley Bond was the editor, and I worked with Steve Rolston as the illustrator. And that was such a different way of doing it because for those scripts, you have to be so specific it's like everybody has to know what's going to happen before it happens. So we really did it like page by page with panel descriptions, with like everything going kind of like into thumbnails, into pencils in this way that was like, and like we go from the script for the first page all the way through the process and then we go to the next. Like it was so slow and methodical because I think what Shelley was doing was sort of teaching me about comics as we were doing it. Mm-hmm. And... I totally loved learning that stuff. Like, I didn't know anything about comics until I wrote for DC Comics mm-hmm. and for Minx. 
But at the same time, I was like, whoa. Like, I really just don't want to tell someone what to do with this. Like, it just felt ridiculous to be like, she should be, you know, this should be a close-up. This should be a medium shot. Yeah. I was like, we're not. Like, it can be whatever (laughs) you want. And I felt like Steve Rolston was such an incredible person to work for. He had such an incredible way of, like, manifesting what was in the panel description in this way that was, like, exactly what I was picturing. But... I was like, that's a cool way to work, and it, you know, it's a doable thing, and I'm really happy with Amico Super Superstar and the way it turned out. But I was like, I don't really just, it just doesn't make any sense to me to be telling a really talented person what to draw. Yeah. So I think after that, I'm so glad that I know what I know about comics and what I know. Like, I think that I, every time I work with an editor or work with a different publisher, I learn something new. Um, but it's, funny because my default is still like I know the dialogue and I know captions and I know what the character is supposed to think and say and feel but I really don't have a set sense of what you should be seeing at any given moment Mm -hmm. like that just to me seems like it's not my it's not my forte so I don't really feel like doing it Mm -hmm. I think that's so nice well it's also just like What's the other way of doing it to be being like... Being a control freak. Being a control freak. But then that's all, it's very stressful too, right? Well, I know as an illustrator, a friend of mine told me this and it stuck with me that to take any job, it either needs to offer freedom, money, or time. Right. And so freedom is such a value. Like yeah. freedom is as valued as money. Right. In this, you know, everything, every project, you know, ideally the project should have all three. Oh, Whoa. Yeah. But on. a project should have at least one of those. And yeah. if it doesn't... You have a control freak who wants it fast, who has like three tuppence to give you. Right. And it maybe is not worth it. Right. No, and I think, you know, to me, I try to take things that, you know, will be a learning experience. Like I did uh, uh, like a one arc for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I was like, I'm going to do this because I've never done 22 pages. Mm-hmm. And writing a story in installments of 22 pages is something that's like a real challenge. And so I'm going to try Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I did that. I was like, okay, let's see if I can do this. Yeah. And actually, I got a really great um, um, Joan Hilty, who's one of the editors there, was gave me just like the greatest piece of advice because she was like looking at my arcs and she was like, you have no ticking clock. What does that mean? Can you she was like, that? there has to be a sense that you're like, what's happening? Like, there has to be a sense of urgency, like that there is, like that there's something at stake, right? There's something at stake because. Otherwise, everything is just like, you know, like I, she's like, you write these things where everything's just, time is just loose and flowing and all of this stuff. And she said, you have to, you know, there has to be some reason that we're flipping the page. Yeah. Uh, And I was like, oh, oh, okay. (laughs) I never thought of it. I was like, I can do that. Yeah, okay, cool. Did that change your ultimate story arc or just change the way you told the story? It changed the way I told the story and it changed the way I saw 22 pages. Mm -hmm. Because it made me think of 22 pages not as like, well, this is what I, this is how much space I have and here's what I have to fit inside of it. As like, what is the difference between like, like how do things speed up from the first page to the last page? Like, what is the, like, you know, the, the idea of a turn where things get heightened halfway through? Like, mm-hmm. all of that stuff, which is funny because I love action movies. Like, I'm a huge fan of, like, Born Identity, all that stuff. So I was like, oh, yeah, I love watching that in a movie. So yeah. how do you make that happen in a comic? Cool. Yeah. 
I mean, I, no, I wrote that down when you said that at the talk. I was like, the ticking clock. The ticking clock. I was like, how do you have the ticking clock? I love, I, I, I'm part of this um, teaching arts organization in Portland, and the first professional development thing I went to, they were like, we're lifelong learners. And at the time, I was like, that's so stupid. Right. I was like, that's so stupid. Yeah, whatever. Because I was teaching the same workshop. Did you I had say taught. that out loud in the back? Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, who said that? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I was teaching this workshop I had been teaching for five years, and I was like, you guys don't know my thing. You know, you don't know about zines or whatever. But I just realized I've taken that on, and I now I am the hokey cheat where I'm like, I am a lifelong learner. Yeah. And the more open I am to learning things, the more I grow as an artist but like that kind of thing like reading screenwriting books and thinking more and more and more about character and story structure and being yeah. like what does my character want or what does my character like think they want and what do they actually want or like well, you know, what are they doing versus what they actually need to be doing and if you're not learning I feel like my concern if I'm not learning is that I'm just writing the same book over and over again right which yeah. you know you can certainly do. Like, if people really love it, you can write the same book over and over again for, for as long as you can write. Yeah. But I feel like, um, like, I'm really obsessed uh, right now with, like, murder and suspense and stuff like that because I feel like I love it. I love the parts of it that I think I know how to do, but there's definitely parts of it that I don't know how to do. So that's, like, the thing that's really kind of pulling me now. Or, like, you know, I was obsessed for a long time with, and still am with like creative nonfiction mm-hmm. uh, because I'm like yeah like like I read um, in cold blood mm-hmm. which is like you know an incredible book and you're like not only is this an incredible book but it's a book about this real story so you know that's a real unique thing to do to take something that's really happening and turn it into a story as opposed to like this is this sequence of events that are true mm-hmm. I think that you would be so good at that uh, what advice do you have for young writers or cartoonists or whoever um well the one piece of advice that i always give is actually ira glass's advice mm. uh we could just say it's your advice and then he took it from you <laughs> ira glass he, he, uh, he heard this from you and then he just really ran with well, it well it's he's it's uh, it's on the interwebs that he said this but he said uh the hardest part about being an artist is that your um taste evolves before your talent so you as a young writer know what's good and you also know that the thing that you are doing is not that thing and it can be really frustrating and I think it's actually true of artists at all stages is that there's a difference between what you have in your head what you really want and what you see yourself doing and the struggle is to like get to that point where you're like happy with your own work Um, and I think a lot of what sort of holds people back is that kind of frustration is this kind of like feeling of wanting to be an artist wanting to make this work like that inspires you the way other books have inspired you and then like not feeling it's there Mm -hmm. and it's a process like I always say to people like um I save every time I write a new draft or something I'll save it like as version like 10 yeah Uh, and uh you know and you're like version 56 you're like version 56 like you're like but it's also you know every you know it's like I've also heard people say like you keep editing until it gets better and then when it's not getting any better you have to stop editing but it really is a process that almost all work has to go through of like trying to figure out a way to make a story better is you know there's no harm in that and there's there's certainly no 
it's not like the more professional you get, the less editing you do. Like, that is not the case at all. And it's so important to listen to other people. Yeah, it's important because you're not just making work for yourself. I gave this, um, I had this, uh, like, seminar I gave for, like, a bunch of kids who had won, like, a writing contest in high school. And uh, this one kid was very much like, you know, like, I don't know if you'll understand the story that I wrote. And he was very, like, he was dressed very clockwork orange. And I was like, guy, whatever. But he was very, being very sort of, like, disdainful of anyone potentially reading his stuff and whether or not they would understand it. And I was like, eh, well, except that that's kind of the goal, right? Is for other people to read your work and understand it. And you can certainly say as a writer, this is not for everybody. This is for these ten people who I have originally sort of, like, thought of in writing this story. That's fine. But the idea of being completely disdainful of other people, you know, being able to connect to your stuff is is a little bit foolhardy to me, yeah. right? Like, you know, you other people are... It can be that you disagree with other people's. Like, I had someone read one of the first books that I wrote and was really upset because she was like, well, it's really clear that the mother in this book was abused. And I was like, what? And I was like, no. And she was like, well, uh, it's really obvious to me. So I had this huge mental breakdown. I was like, I've written this book where this mother's abused. It's not what I wanted to do. And my my original editor was like, no, it's not. I'm not seeing it. Like, don't sweat it. And actually, nobody else has ever said that in the whole time reading the book. And she was like, yeah, you know, people are going to come to your work with stuff and... You have to, you know, consider that as well. Yeah. The lunatic, you know, person who's like, this is a book about me. Well, it's like, like somebody once did a, like a speech bubble in a pet portrait and a painting of like the dog was like speaking a heart symbol. The person's like, I showed it to my roommate. They said it looks like sperm. <laughs> and I was like... Then you don't know what sperm looks like. Then you, I didn't ask your fucking roommate. What did you yeah. It's like it's a speech bubble. Have you ever right. heard of a speech bubble? But now I, that kind of thing haunts me, and I'll think about it sometimes. But it's really, yeah, it's somebody just bringing their own lens well, to your work. But, but truly, to get better at anything, you have, you have to be open to being edited or at least get some feedback. You're the captain. They're the crew. Also, like, everything that you put out there is going out into the public. And the other thing you have to know is that the public has the right to respond, right? So uh, I was actually just talking yesterday at this... Uh, library event about you know people talking about like being afraid of writing certain characters or you know writing characters of different cultural backgrounds or religions or what have you and like what about not getting it right and I was like well you can do your best to get it right and you can do your research and you can get other people's opinions and you can like be open to other thoughts and other input but then in the end you're responsible for it so you have to decide that this is your book and you've written it and if it looks like sperm, it looks like sperm. You you drew it. That's the deal. Like that, like that is one of the harder parts of being a writer is to have people come up to you and be like, you know, like, I didn't like this. And you're like, okay, well, sorry. Like, I, <laughs> okay, you know. Like I <laughs> was reading, uh, you know, because people also like send you emails and they're like, I didn't like this book. But, you know, can you tell me this question because I have a homework assignment or whatever. It's like, okay, well, I guess that's part of it. Just people <sighs> having their own feedback and thoughts. And I get books, I get letters from kids. That, and there's almost like, 
every letter you get from a kid, there's always like one really hypercritical thing that they say in the letter. Uh-huh. Because you're like, did your mom make you write this? This seems overly harsh. Like what? Um, just like, you know, like I didn't under oh yeah, one kid wrote me a story or a letter and it said, um, uh, I thought that there was like far too much swearing in this book. Um but I liked this, like this and this and this about it. Uh and then the other part of the letter she said, um, I can't imagine being a writer because you would have to have such a thick skin because people would say like mean things to you all the time. I was like, Yeah, like there's too much swearing in my book. Swearing in my book. I personally, I avoid reviews. Oh. I avoid reading reviews. Sure. Any of those things. I do. Will sit in my head and just fester and block out all the nice things people have said that I'm like, they're just being nice. And then that little thing that somebody says, I'm like, ah. Um, well, you can't. I mean, the thing about reviews is that, I mean, I trust my editor and I trust the people around me who work with me on these things. And actually, one of the greatest things about working in comics is it's like, I'm happy with this book. The person that I made it with is happy with this book. And that's all that matters. Because you know, like, they work on a new book. Yeah. So we, yeah, exactly. But like, it's kind of nice to work on a comic with somebody else. Because then you're like, we like it. Not just like, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, my team. Yeah, my team. We're a team. Our team likes it. Our team likes it. <laughs> Last question. If you had to give a comic student one assignment to become better, right? what would you make them do? I really think um, that uh, working with short stories is such a great way to start. I mean, I think like, like to me, there's like, if I like the perfect composition is like the perfect short story. So like Alice Munro, like get an old Alice Munro short story or uh, Timothy Finley or somebody like uh, Lori Moore, like mm. take one of their short stories and turn it into a comic to me, it would be, like, the perfect assignment. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming on Sagittarian Matters. Thanks, man. Uh, and I should say, we recorded this in Oakland in your living room. Yes, it's true. On your couch, which is, like, a mellow mustard color or, like, a tan, like a teddy bear color. This is a good couch. Teddy bear colored couch. Yeah. All right. Over and out. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.